Good morning, everybody. Hello. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And guess what? It's uh, AD testing. Episode number 35. You know, I've been in this room for a few minutes. I just noticed that Brent has no facial hair on his face. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back and forth between trying to decide, do I want to look younger and fatter or less fat and older? Not touching that with a 10-foot <laughs> pole. Hey, so uh, not only are we here recording at our normal time of 8 a.m., good morning, but it's a daylight saving time weekend. Yeah, that was fun. And the weird thing is, for the first time in as long as I couldn't remember, it snuck up, but I didn't know it happened. I thought my clocks were wrong. I thought there was like an AT&T bug for a while. I got up yesterday morning getting ready to go do some homework. And then I looked, first thing I do is I looked at my phone and I said, wait a minute, why does my phone say it's an hour later? First off, going into, oh my God, my phone's broken. (laughs) Then even worse, oh wait, I may have just lost an hour. (laughs) Yeah. So, which caused some frustration because my son had to be at baseball practice and, and deep in the bowels of Seattle early that day. And I just lost an hour in prepping. Oh, well. Oh, well. So it's early. I'm a little tired, um, but I, th- I think I'm okay. But it reminded me of a story I wanted to tell. And actually, a story I don't think I've told before on the podcast. What's that? Whoa! <laughs> there was a time. Uh, must have been around right around the turn of the century. It's great we can say that now, right? Right around the turn of the century when I had uh, just joined the Windows CE team and was doing some uh, – kernel and driver testing and but i was also in this test architect role and uh one of the the role was still pretty new didn't know what it was but it was a really weird spot in the product cycle where it was kind of almost too late to jump in and do like anything major uh but there was a bunch of work needed to get done so the first one of the first things i did was sort of get an overview of what's getting done on the team what's not getting done what are the plans trying to get an idea of what was happening with the product in one of those meetings i found out that there was this, all this work for the shell and Windows Explorer. On This is on Windows CE 4? 3? 3. One of those versions back there. Probably and 3. He said, this work is all planned, but there's no developers for it, so we're not going to do it. I looked at it, and I said, it was like five features and 20 bugs. I love fixing bugs. It, to me, it's, it's, it's a very fine line between... That investigation of testing and figuring out, oh, that's all the problem is, I can fix that. I'll go ahead and do it. So that, so for about three months, I was a developer. I was the shell developer for Windows CE. Did you do all five features? I did. And the reason this story is actually relevant, despite your wonders about that, is that one of the features that I wrote was implementing a DST check, daylight saving time check, on Windows CE, making sure that the clock changed at the right time. When is the clock supposed to change? Ah, it depends on the time zone. (laughs) I don't want to dive deep into the implementation, but the point is I know because of the effort I put into getting this right and in making it right for everyone that daylight saving time is a place that's just ripe for finding bugs. Absolutely. One of the things I learned as a developer was when when you were – maybe – some developers don't make this connection, but when I'm maybe they're really proud of the cleverness they got it to finally work at least on their machine. But for me, I finished that and I thought this is probably never going to work. So I immediately, this will tie in some other topics today. I immediately began testing it. 
I, I, I tried different time zones and setting timers and and there's additional in addition to looking at the time zone and when the time is supposed to change, what day and date sorry what date and time, there's also two different paths where that update can happen when your machine's on like it happens to be running when that happens, and then when it's off and you boot into the new time zone right. So I tested the heck out of that thing. I'm not going to say the code was bug-free. It worked in every situation that I could think of to try. And I would love to say that there were no customer bug – actually, I can say there were no customer bug reports ever on DST. But I don't think that many people actually used the feature. You, I, I don't think CE was used that much at that time. I'm sure it didn't some, do an auto-switch? Auto I'm sure some – oh, for, for DST? Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. Again, this wasn't like something you went out and bought uh, a device with the Windows shell on it. I mean, the Windows shell was sample code. So basically, right, I, but I, it, I wrote DST detection sample code for embedded developers. But at that point in time, that that I think was Windows Phone six five days. No, it was before then. Before then, before. Win- oh, really? This was before Windows Phone five. This was in. Well, the thing is, I'm willing to bet that that code went. Forward. Like, who was going to rewrite that code? I don't know. I don't know. It might even still whole, be the code I in ho- here. I hope not. No, it's not. Brent's holding up his Windows phone because Windows phone is now based on Windows, Windows, 10. Windows 10 embedded, not Windows CE, which was a whole different operating system. This was a true embedded, well, I guess this is true embedded also, a very small, a true small componentized OS. I remember my friend and I used to play foosball all the time. He was actually the architect and I played foosball. Um, really smart guy. But we didn't like walking the, you know, the 100 feet to the table to find out somebody was already there. So uh, you younger listeners may not remember floppy disks, but we had a floppy disk, 1.44 meg. It could boot ROS with a 1394 driver and a camera and a, and a website off of, off of a 1.44 meg. But the whole thing off of there, so basically ran a, a foosball table monitor that booted and ran off of a floppy. Was it a camera? How did yeah, you monitor? Just a camera and a website. Oh, gotcha. We could actually do an HTTP server showing a video stream. I I love it. Try that today. Try and boot that damn thing off of a <coughs> two gig USB drive. <laughs> hey, I have a a. Are we done with DST? I have a surprise topic today. Oh, yeah, we're done with DST. I I don't know if I like surprises. <laughs> I'm tingly. Um, so I got you a gift. A gift. A gift. It is, I hope it's appropriate for podcast. It's not as relevant as it was when I ordered it, but this will probably shift into... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> for, um, and I know, I know only two of the three at the most play video games, but, uh, and I've been so busy, I haven't played my Xbox like in two weeks. But Brent and I was it just last episode? We haven't recorded two episodes. Month. Two episodes ago, we talked about the fact that we were all like play, playing Fallout like crazy, play, playing Fallout like crazy, and and <laughs> you can only laugh if you know this, this gift means nothing if you haven't played the game. But it's a Vault Boy agility bobblehead, <laughs> so. and it actually bobbleheads. <laughs> Oh, my God. I went and looked at it, and I'm like, ah, which one to get him? 
That is. They didn't have one that was generically just special. Otherwise, (laughs) I would have gotten that one. But the next appropriate one seemed like agility. Thank you very much, sir. You betcha. That is fantastic. That will go up on my trophy case (laughs) right next to uh, my little doll of Deadpool. Did you see Deadpool? I have not seen Deadpool yet. I I don't know if you ever read the comic. I'm a big dead. Deadpool's hilarious. I love Deadpool. Read it. What's his face? Ryan Reynolds, the guy that. You, f- you feel like the part was written for him. There could be no other actor in the world that could play Deadpool. Uh, that's my sense from seeing, seeing, seeing the trailers. right? I think Ryan did a uh, – I'm, I'm with the rest of the world and saying he did a horrible job in Green Lantern. But uh, Because Green Lantern's DC and all the DC movies suck. I was a big – I have a heavy Marvel bias from my childhood. I do as well. Um my my favorite character was Thor, and I think Marvel has totally screwed him up. Yeah, I don't like <laughs> what they've done with the Thor movies. It's kind of weird, right? And they the they're saying that the next iteration will be Thor as a woman, because yeah. anyone can pick up the hammer. Yeah, and there's a comic on that, right? Too. Yeah, I'm just like really. So okay. this is the AB testing podcast. We should get there eventually. Yeah. So um. I sent Brent some mail this uh, like three weeks ago, uh, and the gist of it was ten days ago. Was it just ten? My world is just weirdly paced. It feels like it was so long ago. So much has happened since then, and we've made so much progress on that. But it's weird. But anyway, the mail basically said, "Hey, Brent, um, you know, as I you can know, read the mail. If- oh, why don't you read the mail? <laughs> and uh, for context, uh, those of you maybe listening to your first." Uh, AB <laughs> testing podcast. Um, maybe your last. We don't know. <laughs> or you may be shutting it off right now. Um, I am the quality guy on an engineering team. I'm the guy that has to make sure. Not uh, wrong way to put it. I'm the guy responsible for or making sure that uh, quality work happens within the dev team. We're thinking about horizontals and we don't let anything fall through the cracks. There's the context. But I was running into a little bit of a problem, and as I. D- as I do when I have questions or things I want to get some more ideas on, I will reach out to those in my network. Brent is in my network, and I sent him the following email. Getting to zero bugs is the title of the mail. Yes. Brent, curious on your advice here and how it compares with what I'm doing. We're down to fewer than 100 bugs across our product and continuing when the wheels fell off. Bug counts and bug age are drifting up. Excuses are, I want to fix this, but I have more important things to do. Oh, we're going to get a bunch more bugs when we're going to internal dog food. I don't want to stop writing features just to fix bugs. And those are a little exaggerated, but I wanted to, I wanted yeah. to tickle something in, in, in Brent's uh, rhetoric. Yes. Uh, challenge is that most teams are overbooked on features and used up their quote-unquote buffer time to add more features. To me, the challenge isn't caring about bugs, but helping the team balance features, bugs, automation, performance, the illities, etc. when all are important to ship. Balance all of these. It's interesting. How have your teams done this in the past? So, and that was the main point. The the bugs thing uh, we will get under control, but it's the paraphrased version of that is. And don't you dare read your answer because it, I'm not okay. Good. Having a low bug threshold or having a low number of bugs that's important because it gives us the ability to 
better ability to respond to customer requests without working on top of a pile of bugs, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have to have good performance and good reliability and abilities across the board. We also have features that we uh, think, quote, think we need uh, and other stuff. There's all kinds of stuff. How do you, so the question really is, how do you balance all that stuff? Before we go into discussing that, because I want to try to turn this into sort of a, a brainstorming discussion. Sure. Instead of, um, just me. And, and by the way. Me Br- reading back. Brent sent me a, a nice list of things. And uh, most of that were already on my radar. Should me feel good. Plus some new ideas. But, um, but yes, from now, let's go back into brainstorming. Yep. The, um, so I have received two other uh, similar type problems recently. And the reason why I think it's similar is because I think it all comes down to changing behavior or changing incentives. Okay. Um, first, on my particular team, uh, and this is very common, uh, I, I do a lot of agile coaching, help people shift over, and there's this concept from extreme programming called collective ownership. Uh, it's very important when you're trying to shift over to agile. But it's really hard to get individuals to, to buy in. Um, the second one... Actually, let's, are you going to go back into those? Should we want to talk about collective ownership a little bit? Let, me, let me cover all three topics. Right, I just want to make then, sure I know the right can, place to properly interrupt and discuss. And all then right. you can... Let me know. We can go wherever I, you want to go. I'm going to sit here quietly and you let me, As know, you what, talk. Let me know when I can speak again. <laughs> and then the last one is... Um, We've had the discussion of generalists versus specialists. Um, as we've talked in the past, uh, I kind of teach people to – I'm beyond teaching people going through the Scrum model. It's, it's not ideal in my, in my um, point of view. Uh, but there's a problem there. What happens if you follow – either the scrum model or even the Kanban model to the nth degree, it kind of encourages you to be an assembly line robotic generalist. And one of the current problems people have is how do I differentiate myself from everybody else who's also a robotic generalist? So there's there's this idea that... Um, Sure, I'm bought into specialists or evil, um, but gen- over pivoting on generalists is not what I personally want because I can't differentiate uh, when it comes to review cycle. I'm done with the permar on all these things. Where would you like to go next? So, uh, collective ownership. Yes, okay. and that tie you started answering a little bit in the in the. Massive generalist. The uh, you're talking about generalists. Generalists predominantly on the team. Which see if like we've talked, and I've I've mentioned this a million times. I think imagining you have an engineering team where every single engineer owns everything from soup to nuts is a little is a pipe dream. It just doesn't. One, you're not going to have that many generals who can do all that, and two, stuff's going to fall through the cracks because nobody's really good at anything. Everybody's pretty good to okay at everything. So right. this is where I really believe the generalizing specialist or the specializing generalist is critical. One, that's where differentiation happens. That's where you can shine. Yep. 
But two, uh, and I want to talk both sides of this, that's where you can start to plug holes and not let things fall through the cracks. Huge believer in, in again, anybody who's listened to our podcast knows we believe in the generalizing specialist, specializing generalist. Yes. Uh, the challenge is, let me give you an example of our team. Uh, the other end of that, so I'm a big believer in that. We have a lot of, it's less, but we still have specialization on our team where we want to move, we're moving towards more collective ownership. Uh, there are some places where we have examples of that, but in many places there's too much expertise in the technology of the feature area uh, for other like for the larger team to come in and be effective in that area quickly. What do you mean? So feature feature team A has some specific bit of technology or functionality they're doing, uh, even though it's in the same language, same you know same part of the website. Team B, we can't. There's no collective ownership between what Team A does and Team B or little because the guys on Team B, they don't really know how the stuff in Team A works at all. They can't come in there and be effective uh, sharing code, fixing bugs. Uh, so as a team, they're in charge of distinctly separate verticals within the product? Yes. Right now we have feature teams that work on distinct feature areas of the product. Okay. Uh, we're getting less of that. In fact, one of our more um, – one of our better dev managers, hopefully they don't listen and think I'm stack ranking them, but one of our, I think one of our better dev managers actually, quote, air quotes, owns uh, a set of disparate features. He's the guy, he's sort of the kitchen sink guy mm-hmm. because he has no problem with his team flowing between things. And he's sort of, I think he's sort of figured that out, although he has sort of specialists on his team. Uh, it's more of the example of what I want to see across a larger team where there's more flow. I, you know, to me, if I had my druthers, I could be in charge. I just I'd have managers who had people working for them that they coached and mentored, et cetera. But as far as what features they worked on, it'd be a lot more fluid as was needed by the project, uh, needed by the project and times, et cetera. Well, so we're I, I believe so, we're in a transition where we can get somewhere closer to that. But right now, as far as uh, collective ownership goes, it's difficult because we have too much expertise expertise slash specialist in certain vertical feature areas. The just to, to add a little extra color to what you just said, because the every time I go in and I I do another coaching session, bring another team online, uh, I walk them through this and they nod their heads and buy in. Okay. And it's because it takes a few months for them to execute to realize number one that assigning allocation resources to projects from an ROI point of view actually makes the team better and makes everyone else better, okay? Because much like what you just described, it would be super fluid. You'd have perhaps this shared backlog. People come in. Anyone can add an item to the backlog. It automatically, or very low friction, gets stack ranked appropriately. The top ones get doled out to whoever is available to do the work, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, management uh, very quickly buys into this model, and it's primarily because it's awesome, okay? <laughs> it's, the... And employees, after they get over the, the, hey, maybe it's not so bad not just being a specialist, um, after they get over this, they go, wow, you know what? Every two weeks, I get an endorphin rush because I'm producing a new 
thing, and I can immediately see if it was useful or not. Creates a sense of, of purpose that was more than what the, the prior review model did, does, right? The prior review model is, hey, I created a bunch of features, uh, let's say in the case of something like Windows or Office, where it used to be three years. I created a bunch of features. Uh, it's, it's review time now. The features I just built aren't going to go out for another two years. So how do I get reviewed? I get reviewed based off of a bunch of people's opinions, right? No, int- no extrinsic sense of, of purpose or value. It's all, I did better than Alan, therefore I'm yeah. awesome. And I, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> but uh, I, don't think the, I don't think the updates in Microsoft's review model necessarily will have helped that in every org, have changed that. There are, I, I no, know some large orgs at Microsoft, large orgs that uh, – Sorry, I was pointing at an object in the room to reference uh, with the org, uh, where it's still features. It's not quality. It's features. Yet I hear about some orgs where execs say features are second place to quality, and, and they back it up. So it really depends on leadership and what they value. And in fact, in any time you're on a team, uh, talking about these these opinions of others, mm-hmm. it's really based on what your manager and your team around you what they value, right? More than anything, and if they value features, if they over quality in the in reviews or whatever, they're going to any sort of feedback, they're going to base that on those values. It's, it's tangent. A, it's an interesting system, right? The because certain one offs like that. Um, I can easily take a team, a team that has that has that sort of value system. I can once I know that that's the key, the root value that's causing it, then I can go attack that and get rid of that. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and for me, I think it's critical that the team knows. If, if the team knows what you value, they're going to. Maybe you're going to talk about this. No, I want to. So, but, but let me. Go ahead. If, so if. If the team has a shared set of values, like we care about quality, we care about collaboration, we care about uh, velocity, for example, that doesn't be what you care about, and you as a leader in that group, whether you're a manager or an exec or just a technical leader IC, if you as a leader celebrate and point out when people do those things, they do show great examples of collaboration, they show great examples of of um Valuing quality over getting uh, some shiny new feature in the product. If you, when you bring those up publicly to the group, other people will want to get that those accolades too, and will do the same things. Yes, and the opposite will happen too. If you say we must add these features, getting these features done and into our product is above all the most important thing. That's exactly what will happen. Despite you, you yeah. will always get more of what you measure. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Nobody has ever heard that before. No. Yeah. The, Go on. But just to close off the, what I would mean by the generalizing versus specializing. As, as a new level of maturity gets into an agile team and, and the management gets it and the ICs get it, okay? the ICs then notice a general tendency towards um, generalization. 
right? There's a general tendency that managers go, hey, I will just stack rank. Here's the ROI. People should just pick the top ROI thing, uh, regardless of whether or not it's something that is interesting. Um, so then uh, overuse of this type of system will reduce people's love of the system because it it's removing their um, autonomy, mm-hmm. their ability to to master something that's of interest to them. Anyway, um, in a paragraph or two, like that's possible for you. What would you say if what I say to you? Hey, what's the high level advice you have? What should I do? What action should I take to help the team balance quality? any sort of quality stuff along with uh, advancing features. How do you make that balance as an engineering team? The very first thing that I would, I would say is you got to understand the incentives of the people involved. As we've said over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it is always a people problem. The, Thank you, Jerry Weinberg. Yes. The, the situation you, you talked about as you were talking about the, the value systems of the team, Right, I've encountered multiple teams that have gone in and they were like, hey, this is our value system. Well, what do I do as a coach when I can readily see that the value system is actually the cause? If they have a value system of velocity, velocity is a great thing. But um, that as, as part of your value system could actually uh, – I've seen it also over and over and over again – where if you have your value system be velocity, then it negatively impacts adaptability. Um, the first thing I would do is say, it, it, honestly, it doesn't matter. Number one, um, make what you do transparent. The more you make it transparent and show how you are measuring towards your value system, um, then it will be a matter of time before someone smart or a bunch of people smart within your team go, hey, wait a minute. These things that we see on a day-to-day basis that is transparent is not aligning towards our value system. And then it, it starts to create a, a conflict between what's right, the, the, the specific data that we're, we're showing on a day-to-day basis or the value system. Get adaptability part of the value system as a as a first cousin, okay, and then recognize that it is a it's a people problem first and foremost. And and what I put in Alan's mail is also what I um, I think about first is everybody on the team um, wants the Daniel Pink um, motivations, but what that's that. What is it? Mastery. Autonomy. Autonomy and purpose. Correct. Right? Huge. The AB Testing Podcast are huge fans of Dan Pink. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you change the incentive structure such that it is aligning to um, the actual value system that is important, yeah. whether or not it's the one that's published? Right? There's also... We could throw in all kinds of quotes. We got we got uh, Weinberg, we got Pink, so let's throw in Amor as well. And right, the what is it? The fourth order. How do we create a method by which we understand 
that which we don't know we don't know, right? And transparency is what does that. Yeah, we need a, a suitable mechanism for discovering what we don't know we don't know. Philip right. Armour. So do you all remember about 25 minutes ago when I asked Brent for that paragraph answer to my question? <laughs> I was looking at the time. This it is, was four minutes ago. Yeah, Brent can't tell time. It's DST. It's a bug. So this actually reminds me. I uh, last, you know what? I've lost all sense of time. A weekish ago, maybe a little more. I spent a little bit of time on a Skype call with one of the three. Shout out to Percy. Percy, mm. woo! Thanks for listening, Pers. Pers. <laughs> <laughs> it's not and purge though it's purge I, I know I, I, I was being all cool on the deets and things now yeah. he's probably offended but no he's a cool guy sounds um, like purge z right, right. right. anyway <laughs> i i don't know why i go off on these tangents that i have to edit right thanks man <laughs> or maybe i won't so anyway you, uh you want to know more about this what it means for an engineering team and 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 devs to own test and Part of what we're talking about was in my answer to him. I'm not going to recap our whole call. Um, it was fun for me just to sort of brain dump what we do as a way for as because sometimes when you talk through something, you end up explaining it and discovering things about like, oh, maybe I want to change this and do something differently and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you some of the highlights uh, and talk about this balance, which has been fun for me. So as you know, we don't have we don't have a test team. We have a couple of vendors that help out with some of the, the matrix of ideas. But as far as verification and throwing things over the wall, you throw it over the wall to yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you bounce it on the ground in front of you, whatever the right metaphor is. Uh, so my team, I expanded my team. I doubled my team size. I didn't tell you this. I now have two people on my team. Nice. Way and to we, go. And we own everything from the moment code is checked in until it gets deployed to production. I say own, that's an ownership, it's not a quality thing, but we're responsible for making sure all that goes smoothly. So build pipeline, uh, test pipeline, making sure things get, the, the tools are in place to increase efficiency, uh, developer productivity, et cetera, et cetera, all happens on so our So you own thing. the flow of the assembly line? Yeah, yeah, we, okay. keep, we, keep, we keep the the wheels turning. That's a good way to put it. We keep the wheels turning. Uh, so how do we scale that to quality? And again, um, if I may rant... Every, you know, I'm so annoyed with the testing world of self-proclaimed system thinkers who can't believe that there's ever a possible way for a team without testers to produce a quality product. Every time they see a bug, whether it's a major bug or, you know, a, a font is clipped, they, they point out the fact this is what happens when you don't have testing. And they're just stupid. I'll tell you right, right now, you're stupid. So the problem is, but that- in a nutshell, it's also what happens when you do. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know what? The testing still happens. Stop. Mm-hmm. I-, I think it's self-preservation, or often, t- or tweet bait, or both. But it just drives me crazy. It, I've, I've. There are testers I follow on Twitter, who I honestly don't know why I follow because they just push my buttons with. Their, they're they're stuck in 1980, and it drives me crazy. I don't know why. Because they're yes, stuck in 1980. Because I understand that there are testers out there and test teams out there and engineering teams out there that are stuck in 1980 and they need consultants that live in 1980 along with them. And that's fine. I don't want that to be my world. But anyway, back yeah. to my story. A couple things we've done is uh, we have uh, – I'll get the highlights. We have three environments. We have a CI environment, a pre-production environment, and a production environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we have a couple of contract vendors, and I refuse to let them touch anything in CI. CI is where developers play. They can go look and make sure their stuff is working, et cetera. And we'll look at stuff across a large matrix when it gets to pre-production. So that helps scale things as well, too. They know that initial verification, all theirs. Making sure it works, they own that completely. The developers write uh, unit tests. Uh, they write integration tests. Uh, they perform their own bug bashes or bug, you know, focused exploratory sessions was the long story for another podcast. They, they do that work. And then, uh, so that's good. And then, uh, there are things around, do you remember in the old days? Like you were an, you were an exchange, but you were an office. I was never in office. Office used to have like these drivers, like the accessibility driver across office. It was some, uh, Tester, you, almost always, they put in charge of gathering stuff up across the teams and blah, blah, blah. Been- Every team is has a unique culture. One of the things that come out of Office is, that I noticed is Office believes very strongly in just hordes of V-teams. Oh, they do too. And, yeah. and we've talked about our loathing of V-teams before. So anyway, I looked at performance, load, accessibility, security, internationalization. And I, th- I looked at my team, one, two. I said, crap, we ain't owning that stuff. So um, I took one of my peer engineering managers, very senior level dev managers, and I took five of them. And guess what? They are my dotted line test leads in charge of accessibility, internationalization, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. So they're in charge of driving that Maybe. stuff all across the team. They're drivers? They're dr- collectors, drivers. Okay. Dashboard fillers. Do do they know that they're dotted line test leads? Absolutely. I tell them that all the time. I meet with them regularly oh. and I make sure that they're gathering the right data for me, preparing what they need. So I really treat them like they you know, they get a half hour or so of my time a week to make sure they're getting the right stuff together in a clear, cohesive way that we can consolidate, et cetera, et cetera. And make sure deadlines are in place that we're they make sure they know the schedule, all the stuff that a test lead would normally do. But okay. and the thing is, uh it's weird. In some ways, they're good at it because they're more senior and able to work better across the team. But in some ways, because they've never done it before, they're just like the most junior test they've ever dealt with. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the only way to make it happen. Yep. But it's, uh, it's an interesting process to watch. And I've seen that before, too, in, in helping developers across two teams now write tests. Um, all the things we learned years and years ago about writing automated tests, the, the dumb things to do as well as the things that work pretty well, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a entry level or a super senior mega architect level. When you start writing tests, automated tests, you kind of suck at it. In general, most people do. And they need some help to go, How oh, like- often have you heard, just, just out of curiosity, how often have you heard someone on your dev team ask the following question? Couldn't we just set up a test recorder? Actually, I've never heard that. Oh, good. Thank God. <laughs> I work with a team of pretty smart people. Yeah. Just, they just It's really experience-based versus critical thinking-based. Okay. Um, we just had a unit test bug last week where we tried to promote our dev build to pre-production, which we only do twice a week. And it failed because someone had hard-coded the, in their unit test, their brand new unit test, hard-coded the path to the dev environment. And I thought about calling them out in mail, and then I and but again, I don't like celebrating or, or pointing out huge mistakes. I, I don't said, know if yeah. that's a, I don't know if that's a, that's a harass worthy fail. 
right? It, it, it was clearly a mistake. Yeah. Again, yeah. But if if his unit test was testing code under the assumption that it was in the development right. uh, environment, then maybe it shouldn't go forward when it goes into we one ru- of the... We run unit tests again when we go to pre-prod. Yeah. But anyway, I... Sort of my philosophy is, is I really try and celebrate when things people are doing things well. For example, we had one team talk about balancing these things. They self-proclaimed that they had a, a little bug backlog buildup, so they self-proclaimed themselves in bug jail. And but that meant is that like for this iteration for this week, we are not going to work on features. We're going to work on getting our bugs fixed only. Except for what there's one critical thing had to come on. So one developer on that, and everybody else focused on debt. They, they did that on their own. I was happy to watch that. Not That sort of technique works better when you have collective ownership. You can scale that across. Yeah. One thing I've mentioned is I talked to a few people at, simil- at companies with a similar size to our team. And one thing they do is they dedicate one person per team, managerial team, whether it's a feature team or not, per iteration, usually one or two weeks, to uh, just focus on debt. So one person is offline from feature work and is focusing on debt. Yeah, I hate that model. Uh, I'm not against it. I'm gonna, but it's, it's, it's way better than ignoring the debt. I would rather just have everyone fix it as they go along. Yeah. And the one other thing that I'm going to start up uh, in the next few weeks here is because of my one, two people and all the work we have. to. And I also believe that – I've mentioned this to my boss – that we are one mor- – morbid alert. We are one bus crash away from – not being able to keep the, the engine running. My team keeps the engine running. There's a, there's a lot of specialty built up and expertise built up and knowledge built up that isn't shared across the team. So you're, I, you, have, you have a specialist bottleneck. I do. So yep. one thing I want to do very soon, that I'm planning to start very soon, is start rotating the dev team through my team. So they'll spend, I'll spend a week working for me Ramping up on knowledge, virtualizing that knowledge of how things work. I think what happens in the past when I've done similar things is people recognize efficiencies and they create some tools or automation or process around them to to make them more efficient. We did something similar in my team recently. We call it the DRI, the Designated Responsible Individual. And that's actually what I'm going to use is we have a DRI who mainly focuses on live site. Yep. And we have the backup who kind of shadows them, make sure they're ready for the next week. And the backup DRI is also going to dotted line to me and work on infrastructure. So that DRI is going to double up. I had one of my ICs pull together a DRI V team. I, <laughs> Not I, a V team. Well, the way I do V teams, I'm, I'm okay with because right. I start them with an end. The very first, yeah. The uh, this is the goal. Once this goal is achieved, this meeting is gone. Right. This this and this group disbands. And um, because. We don't have a bug database, but we still have bugs. All the bugs come across as uh, tickets on our uh, task board. And I w- went specifically looked for um, sticky notes that I wanted to find sticky notes that were black because I wanted it, a bug to... Uh, what color pen do you write on them with? You can get... Uh, All right, whatever. Go on. I had you to can ask. get pins that were I, right I, on there. White I, I colored kinda, pins. I kind of knew there'd be an answer, but yeah. all right, go on. Um, black sticky notes are hard to find, but I can find blood red ones. Um, so that's what we use. And uh, people, when we're when, it's the only thing that causes an interrupt 
once we got the team to the point of a bug, once it lands on the board, uh, we have to turn it around in 48 hours. And so when the team sees just hordes and hordes of hordes of bugs coming across, we have weekly retrospectives that is completely now run by the team. I've actually kicked out all management from the retrospective meetings. Um, so they, they, it's highly transparent. They see the cause and effect. When they go into retrospective, they go, holy crap, we had 20 bug tickets this time. And we only executed on two of the plan tickets. What happens is very much different than what I see in, say, uh, teams much like you describe. People go, we have to figure out what's causing these bugs and root that out because that is what's slowing us down from executing against the plan. Versus... I don't want to work on the bugs. I want to do more features. So there's a story that I'm going to tell. Yeah. And we'll go on to the final thing. Yeah. Is, uh, it's a parable. Fable? Something. One of those. Guy uh, walking out and sees – walking near a river, sees somebody floating by. So he calls to his friend and, and his friend runs out and tries to go save him. Then there's, then there's two more people floating by in the river. And more people from the village run out and try and save them. And then people are floating down the river, and everybody from the village is running out, grabbing them, saving them, and bringing them to the shore. And my friend starts – this guy starts walking up the river, up upstream. Somebody goes, where are you going? We need help. He goes, I'm going up to see who's throwing all these people in the river. Yep. Yeah. So okay. you know what it's time for? Everybody knows what time <laughs> Everybody knows what, what it's time for. Mailbag! Hey, everybody. It's time for the mailbag. Yes. Very uh, exciting. Very exciting. Uh, Danny Fott on Twitter has done something that I've only... This is the only, only... He's now one of the three. But he is the only one of the three I know who has done this particular thing. That is binge listen to A-B testing. Yes, I saw that. I'm like, wow. There, I can't imagine a deeper, more painful experience than binge listening A-B testing. So huge props to Danny for... Um, I don't know if there was alcohol or drugs involved, and I'm not going to judge. But Danny had a question. We have hugely improved. <laughs> Our use of drugs and alcohol. Yes, we have. Yeah. No, I, I actually periodically go back and listen to episode one and two, and I just go, wow. It's, it's actually all the production quality of the production staff of A-B testing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Danny asks... How along the same lines that developer owns testing is ties into our last topic is he asks how well do you expect developers to master functional test design skills? And it's actually there's there's a eleven there's a depth to that question. There there's yeah because at a level of should developers be able to do functional test design? Absolutely. Should they master it? Now let's talk about absolutely. How well should they master it? Uh, that's actually where the ambiguity, as well as they need to, to have a, a sustainable business. Yeah, and but the thing is, for actually all of the three, I think, are pretty experienced testers. How many of the three, rhetorical question, because you can't answer because this is a, you don't have a microphone, nor are you connected to my laptop. But if I were to ask you, have you mastered functional test design? And... I think I'm pretty good at functional test design. 
I don't know if I can self-proclaim myself a master or not. I always think of new things, and, and I don't know. What does it mean to be a master at all? I think a master is just the ability to teach others and okay. confidently teach others because most masters on any topic, they will give you some sort of um, Confucius quote yeah. where the yeah. more I learn, the more I have left to learn, sure. right? Exactly. <laughs> but I think it takes time. Is a brand new developer or a tester going to walk in the door knowing mastering functional test design? No. But if you're responsible for functional quality, whether you're a developer or a tester, over time, you approach or you get closer and closer to mastery. I don't think there's anything there is. In fact, there will be testers with job self-preservation in mind who think that no, coders, people who write code, cannot master functional test design, which is BS. Because they can just as well as anybody who's become a tester. Where that testing mind... Where the testing mind kicks in is not in functional test design mastery. It's in those weird corner cases, those thinking of the system. It's finding, you know what? I think if I am in this time zone and I switch to this time zone right at this time, I bet it'll fail. Let me set up something to simulate that. Boom! Cool bug that no one will ever find. But bad example. But I think where the test mind kicks in, the people that are really good at at testing in investigation, exploring, etc. cetera. Uh, it's not their specialty. Their value to the product doesn't come in their mastery of functional test design. That's a learnable skill that any, any software engineer can do. Even where I think their, their mastery comes from is, is their ability to instinctively see risks in the system Mm-hmm. and exploit them. Sure. Even that is trainable. Yeah. It, it's um, actually a, a, one of the classes that I'm taking this semester. The, the professor has a passion for risk management. And as we go through our projects, he's asking us to focus on risks. And what I've discovered as I've gone through this thing is he's basically backing me into sort of um, TDD uh, through this back-end process of Thinking, considering and thinking about the risks. And I'm realized, huh, interesting. I had to talk to the professor about this and say, hey, um, you might want to formalize this because there's this whole community of developers out there who think it's magic. Um, when it's, it really isn't. It really isn't. But I think of any of the things that are considered functional test design. And I always give a shout out to Lee Copeland, who I think has the best sort of overview readable overview and understanding of what test design is. There's no rocket science or, or map critical Confucius skills in there. It's just, oh, I need to know this. This is learnable. Now I, now I know this. And I've taught these things through code review, through feedback, like, hey, make sure you have a test that handles when you have negative input. Oh, yeah, good idea. And guess what? Then they learn that and they do that for every time they have a function that takes a, a, a integer that can be signed. These are all learnable traits. Completely th- agree. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to take a stab at directly answering Danny's question. Though. Wait, this is the first. We're going to directly answer a question on A-B testing. <sighs> we'll see. So he asks, how well do you expect developers to master functional test design skills? When I think about his question, I think about two things. Number one, one is a coverage question, and another one is a value-add question. And in other words, 
I don't want developers to go in and, and just create test cases, the test case bloat we used to have when we had a bunch of testers, right? We have, uh, we're testing calculator. Oh, let's do a test case. One plus one, one plus two, one plus three. No, we don't need that. Um, what I do expect them to be able to master is the, the positive and the negative cases. And then additionally, be able to to master their test case design to objectively defend the test cases they do not have. In other words, to say, hey, yes, that's a test case. Absolutely, I could pull that in. The value proposition isn't there. Um, uh, I would use a, a reactive design, uh, a, a, not a reactive design, a reactive motivator. I will let customers tell me, uh, I was re-listening to our Redfin, and, and our example in the Redfin was this buy-die character set in the middle of Georgia on February 29th. You know what? I'm going to let the, the live site telemetry tell me that that's important. Somewhere right now, someone's screaming, you can't let the customers do the testing. It's not fair. Uh, you can, and I'm at a point where if, if you are an engineer and you are you caring about the business, I'm at a point where I firmly believe you are morally obligated to do so. So a lot of... The customer is the only person who understands the quality proposition of your output. That is absolutely correct. I, I believe you. Um, yeah. One interesting thing, uh, and thanks, Danny, for the question, And but I want to add one little uh, follow-up to that before we close here for the day, is it was... What I believe, and, and the whole system I'm building is, as far as quality on my team, is being able to react. I want to I have an engineering system and a feedback system and, uh, and quality in place that we can react quickly to customer complaints, requests, ideas, et cetera. And obviously, we won't just listen to every single feature that comes in and go, oh, my God, we got to do that. We'll look at things in collective and prioritize and do the right thing. But I want... I don't want to put myself in a position or put our team in a position where we can't react to that. I was in a meeting last week where, unrelated to my product, but we're talking about uh, the quality and this big release that went out. And there was a manager in the room who said, so we'll have to let the, cust- the customers can find those bugs. This is testing in production. And I, he was a pretty senior guy, so I didn't um, – I think it's a ver- – it's an abused term now, I guess. Testing in production? Yeah. yeah, it is a little bit because I knew, and I didn't call him out, but I talked to some of the other people in the room afterwards after he left. But to me, yes, it's, it's – no, it's just, it's just bugs in production really because they ship monthly at best. There's no way for them to react. Sometimes it's three months. There's, for me, test, you do testing in production when you can – when you the delta between hearing about it or actually not even hearing about it, discovering an error, ideally automatically through monitoring, uh, to mitigating or fixing that error has to be the smallest time possible. Not in the matter of hours, maybe days if you're slow, but not months. No more than a week. And. So I that really kind of stirred something up in me, and you reminded me of that when you were talking about your answer. There is is yes, it's customers, and I'm I'm all for mo- using monitoring and diagnostics, figure out how they're using the product. But you got to be able to react to that. You can't just go, "Yep, that's a bug. We'll put it in the backlog and we'll prioritize it to fix some future day." One of the things that, crazy. One of the things I would say is that overall theme for what we were talking about today is the real 
value add of a systems thinker is to really understand the balance between black and white. Almost always you need both black and both white. You do, should we go all reactive? No, that's stupid. You will not have a business after right. a week. Um, should we go all proactive? No, that's stupid because you're now handing all of your business to your competitor because you're going to go too slow. So how do you balance these things is an important role for anyone who who is actually a systems thinker yeah, inside their organization. That's actually really important because I uh, – and we're often tangent villains to try and close on here. But that's a technique I use time and time again is to look at the extremes. It's a, systems, think, systems thinking is about balance. Yeah. And one way to kind of figure out where that balance is is think about the extremes and figure what that is and what, what that means. So – what does it mean if we have uh, 100 testers for every developer? We don't have to go through that. What, okay, let, let's, t- let's, let's enumerate what happens there. Thought exercise for listeners. Yep. Now, what if we have one tester for 100 developers? What's different? For your context, for your product, and maybe the answer is in between. Maybe it's closer to one extreme or not, but that's for you to figure out. Hey, the other thing, too, though, is... But to blindly say that one extreme yep. is wrong is if you say that and call yourself a system thinker, you're just an idiot because you don't even know what either means. Yeah, but your extremes, the ones that, that you That was a bad did, extreme. Because okay. <laughs> I'm just like, one is wrong and the other one is great. <laughs> so in this particular case, it's not one – like the balance would be on one of the extremes in my humble opinion. Anyway. <laughs> but you need to think about the extremes to figure out how to balance. That's the point. And how would you judge between a selection in between? Right? The, the, the interesting thing about thinking about these extremes that I find valuable is I go, okay, which one do I like? Why do I like it or not? Can I turn that into an objective measure that I can then use to guide where I should actually be? Right? Using the extremes, you can immediately have a visceral reaction. I go, Oh my God! One to a hundred testers. Um, let me get, let me give a different example for the same people who because they tend to be the same people who think testing and production is is idiotic and stupid and 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 uh, irresponsible. It's like, can you think of a product where that would be uh, okay, and one where it wouldn't be okay? Testing and production. Yeah. Or can you think of let's take one hundred percent automation? Yep. Is there one hundred percent test automation? Is there a situation where that would be the right answer versus the wrong answer? What if it was just an API that wasn't even exposed to customers? I like your prior... Ah, like, pick one. Air traffic con- uh, control software. That one probably shouldn't be tested in production. <laughs> there we go. All right, Brent, we have used up more than all of our time. Yep. Uh, so let's say goodbye until next time. But you know what? Actually... Uh, this one can be a little longer because it took a little longer break between the last one and this one. And no, I'm not going to be like split it up into two. You get one shot. What episode was this? I didn't announce it at the beginning. 35. 30. I did. <laughs> at least one of us is thinking. Okay, we'll see you soon for episode 36. I am Alan. I am Brent. Thought I'd fool you. Yeah, right. you, well right. done. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Rock on! Yes.